This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, a chain of islands in Scotland might be ditching the UK for Norway, but why? Professor Donna Heddle is the Director of Institute for Northern Studies at the University of Highlands and Islands in Scotland. She tells us the remarkable story of the Orkney Islands and their amazingly beautiful and surprising ties to Canada. The longer the strike, the bigger the cost for Canadians. Fraser Johnson, Professor of Operations Management at the Ivy School of Business, Western, helps us understand how Canadian ports work and why the Canadian economic impact of the BC port strike could be drastic on all Canadians. Plus, are you okay? With apologies, how about bears? And so much more, including cocaine. Unrelated to the bear, by the way, not a cocaine bear, different story. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. I broadcast from Alberta, a place where all of Canada knows there are people here who want to leave the country. Quebec, there are people there that want to leave the country. Saskatchewan, people there want it. You get what I'm saying. BC, you get what I'm saying. People talk about leaving Canada. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I think it's one of those things that people are like, I'll show you. I'll quit. Okay. Now, there have been things that have been happening around the world that are very similar to this. And, but yet the situation is completely different. Here in Canada, we've tried many times to have an 11th province down in the Caribbean. It's never come to fruition. Might come to fruition tonight, if I can talk Donna into it, about bringing uh, a little string of islands from Scotland to become Canadian instead of going somewhere else. What are we talking about? Um, we're talking about Orkney Islands. And it's a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to learn more. Um, joining us now is Donna Heddle. Donna is a professor of Northern Heritage at the coolest university name of all university names, the University of Highlands and Islands in Scotland, in Kirkwall, Orkney. Hi, Donna. Hello there. Thank you uh, for being here. Please help us understand, for those who do not have a map in front of them at the very moment, um, I feel like I should go, you're way up north, which compared to Canada, you're probably not, but you, you are in, you know, relative look at the geography around the UK. Well, actually, we're further north than you might imagine. We're six degrees further north than Churchill in Manitoba, when the, where I understand the polar bears come in and uh, yep. knock over the winds in the wintertime. Okay. Uh, but we have a, a very temperate climate because we have the Gulf Stream. So we, we have a, you know, a very temperate climate. We are an archipelago of just under 70 islands, just about six miles off the north coast of Scotland, of which 19 are inhabited. However, that's often an argument in a pub on a Saturday night, depending what you mean on the inhabited, of course. Um, <laughs> Uh, we've been uh, populated for over 8,500 years. Oh, that's all. We have the, the oldest standing structure in the Western Hemisphere, which is the house at the Napa Power. Uh, we've been incredibly significant um, in uh, world history. Um, in the earlier part of the medieval period, in the later part of the medieval period, we became part of Scotland, of course. So, Donna, is your family from the Orkney Islands, or did you guys migrate there? Well, Heddle is, of course... Uh, an Orkney name. Uh, most of the settlers um, who settled Orkney in the 8th and 9th centuries actually came from Telemark in Norway. And of course, there is a place named there called Hedal, 
Mm. Well, um, that was, so I mean, it did sound like, uh, like a Norwegian name to me. That's was kind of what I was getting at. So mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's amazing. So uh, have you ever done the DNA tests and all those things to follow the family, you know, through Scandinavian countries and all that stuff where, where the background goes? Well, well, not me personally, but actually a lot of research has been done on the DNA because yeah, I don't know if your listeners know this, but Orkney's um, got the highest rate of multiple sclerosis in the world. I did not know that. Uh, and um, there's been a lot of research done, led by uh, Professor Jim Flett Wilson, himself an Arcadian at the University of Edinburgh, uh, to work out why that should be. Over It's been over 20 years. And during that time, he found out a lot of interesting information about the DNA. And it seems that about 66%, give or take, of the DNA of the modern uh, Arcadian male is, in fact, Norwegian. Wow. Okay, so... If you imagine, for everyone who can't see a map right now, the UK, and then you get up north, and you get Scotland and Inverness, we've all, you know, probably most of us, you get Edinburgh, Glasgow, Edinburgh, then Inverness, and then you're going to get up to the very, very tippy-tippy top. Then there's a bunch of islands, and this is where we get into the Orkney Islands above that. So above that, um, there's the Shetland, that the islands up there. That's not you guys, though, right? No, no. Okay. Well, we're, we're known together as, as the Northern Isles. Okay, so as then... As to the Western Isles. So who is that? What country is that? That's the... Well, Orkney and Shetland are part of Scotland. Okay, Shetland what is ha- still Scotland. Okay, cool. Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. Um, Orkney and Shetland were both colonies of Norway. They were settled by Norse settlers from Norway. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, in 1468, King Christian I of Denmark uh, wanted to marry his daughter Margaret to James III of Scots, but alas, he had no cash for the dowry. Right. So he said, well, look, I've got these lovely islands. What about them just now till I get the cash together? Um, and he, ne- he never did get the cash together. So one February afternoon in 1472, Orkney and Shetland became part of Scotland. That's amazing. And so we have remained. I love that history. Here in Canada, we're 150 some odd years old, right? That's it. I mean, the, the history that you have that goes on here is just absolutely uh, remarkable. Uh, so culturally, on the islands in the day, when you go day to day, would I recognize it if I went to... Edinburgh, maybe Inverness because it's closer, or if I went to, say, Bergen uh, over in Norway, what would I recognize it more? Does it look more like the architecture, Scottish architecture, all that stuff that we mostly see, or is it going to more look like the Scandinavian sort of stuff? Well, that's an interesting one because actually um, we have very little what is referred to as Scots baronial style, which is what you'd imagine, you know, all the town uh, halls and so on in Scotland tend to be that style. Uh, We have lots of... um, very European-influenced uh, houses, for example, the, the crow steps that you get on the roofs that are very Dutch and so on, uh, which reflects our trading heritage. And, of course, we have a lot of Neolithic um, uh, ruins and, and um, uh, monuments and so on and so forth. So it's quite a mixture. Uh, we're, we're, we don't go for the multicoloured houses. Shetland tends to have more of those. That, was, that would be more what you'd expect from Bergen. But Bergen is indeed, of course, Shetland's nearest railway station. That's amazing. Okay, so how do you get to your islands? I know there is a ferry route. Um, do you oh, there are three ferries oh. and fl- regular flights, yes. And regular flights, uh-huh. I would assume. Okay, so um, this is I'm, this is so fascinating to me. I realize this is very simple, for, <laughs> but I, I really want to just ask these questions because this is amazing to me. Um, uh, when you talk about temperate climate up there, you know, you said you're six degrees further north than Churchill, Manitoba, which gets pretty cold. What is a what is a warm, really warm summer day and a really cold winter day up on this very very tip of Scotland? Well, I would have to say that uh, 
uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, we broke the records for temperatures here. Um, okay. Previously, the highest temperature ever recorded in Orkney was 24 degrees. Oh. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was 28 degrees. And really, it was a question of taking the children indoors. It was far too hot. Um, so uh, I would say an average summer day would be about 17 degrees. An average winter day, about three to four degrees centigrade, that is. Does it get below zero? Yes, okay. uh, we, we we do get snow, but because we're an island archipelago, the weather systems tend to blow over the top of us, and we we will get snow, but it won't last very long oh, because of the salt in the air. Okay, okay. So tell me some of this. Uh, the photos, by the way, are stunning. Like I'm going to post some links up to shiftheads.ca for our audience here to be able to take a look at, you know, what this looks like. I mean, the history is amazing. Um, Tell us a bit of the story here, because as I've learned with my family roots uh, in Ireland and England and sort of the English Norman procedure of that they went through, right? Um, and I go back as a Hewitt. We go back to the first Hewitts were 1010 in the English Normans invasion of France. So that we are way back on that. And then so how the Vikings and all this stuff, that must have been that must really still be quite prominent in the history as, as you trickle down from the north down to the south of the UK? Oh, oh, absolutely. But I'd just like to say that if you're related to any of the Normans of Normandy, Shane, then you've probably got Arcadian ancestry. Really, hey? Because, yeah, yeah, because Normandy was founded among, by, amongst others, uh, Rolf, son of the Earl of Orkney. He was known as Rolf the Ganger, Rolf the Walker, wow. because he was too big to ride a horse. I suspect he was only about five foot six, and we're talking Shetland ponies here. Right. But uh, the whole lot of Arcadians went over and founded Normandy. So really, in many ways, 1066 is the Arcadian conquest, not the Norman conquest. That makes sense. That totally makes sense. And th it's so just... that's, that's our language, for example, reflects this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got a lot of um, things that reflect uh, what, were, what also made Norman French, Norman French. So um, our, our connections are, are there as well. Okay, so what's going on now with Orkney Islands? So y'all uh, pulling the proverbial parachute and, and leaving the UK? That's what that's sort of what's getting batted about here, that maybe that belongs elsewhere? Well, we've seen, you know, Northern Ireland and the EU, that whole Brexit thing that happened. We're starting to see smaller organizations like we have Barbados that wanted to step away and still be sort of in the Commonwealth, but, you know, you know, step away from the monarchy and all of that. And we're seeing more and more identity come through, which I love that part, right? When we're having, we're losing identity in so much of these uh, small places in today's world. What is going on in the Orkney Islands that, that started some of this conversation? Well, it's interesting you mentioned Barbados because Barbados, is, of course, is independent um, and uh, declared its independence on St. Andrew's Day because it shares a patron saint with Scotland. Oh, how about that? Um, yeah, so does uh, Russia, Ukraine, um, and various other places. Uh, St. Andrew's a big hitting, top class um, national saint to be happy, clearly. Um, so what's happening in Orkney? Well, basically... Um, uh, the Orkney Islands have, the, we had an excellent campaign called Our Islands, Our Future, along with the other island archipelagos of, of Shetland and the Western Isles in 2014, up to the, running up to the Scottish independence referendum, where uh, we um, negotiated with both Westminster and Holyrood. The result of that was an Islands Act, an Islands Minister and an Islands Plan, which is now being implemented. However, um, the feeling is that uh, things could be moving a bit faster, and I think this is 
much more about drawing the uh, media's attention to Orkney in order to highlight Orkney's issues rather than um, necessarily feeling that we might be becoming part of uh, Norway, uh, Denmark or Iceland or indeed becoming a crown dependency or an overseas territory, both of which routes are actually not available to us at this present time. So it's it's an interesting one. There's always room for discussion about how we can be governed better, of course. Yeah, well, but of course. This has certainly brought Orkney to the world's attention. Does the Faroe Islands situation um, contribute to this a little bit? Because they're, I don't know it too well, but I believe that they've become somewhat independent and self-governing um, away from Denmark, but still somewhat connected. Uh, that's probably way too simple for language, but I think you get the point. Uh, well, the clear, <clears throat> excuse me, the Faroe situation is rather different. Okay. The Faroes uh, and Greenland, indeed, uh, are part of Denmark. Um, Denmark uh, throughout its history, although the smallest of the Scandinavian countries ended up conquering everybody mm. um, because of its location, it's the main uh, portal into Europe as well, and of course uh, because of its military strategy. But um, Faroes uh, has its own parliament. Uh, it sends two members of uh, to the Danish parliament as well. It is fairly autonomous in what it does, but so are the councils of Scotland. Hmm. Uh, um, but Faroes has slightly more autonomy. I suppose it has a huge fishing industry as well. Okay. And it, is, it does have a population twice the size of Orkney too. So it's, it's slightly larger, okay. for example. But they're not, they're, not, they're not particularly the same situation at all. Uh, our guest right now is Donna Heddle. Uh, she's in the Orkney Islands north of Scotland. I, I'm so curious about all the things. I'm, I'm curious about all of the, the political climate, and, and, but I, I want to hear about it. Like, I want to know what it's like to walk around. That's it. I just, I imagine well, you know, Shane, this is beautiful. You know, Shane, we, we offer courses that you can study from Canada if you'd, be, if you'd like to do that. Tell me about that then. Study. Okay, do it. Tell me. <laughs> Tell me. Sell me on this, Donna. Okay. Well, we have uh, programs in Scottish Heritage, of course. We have programs in Norton and Shetland Studies, which you can study from your own computer in Canada and be taught by our excellent uh, award-winning lecturers here at the uh, University of the Highlands and Islands. In fact, I am supervising a dissertation uh, with a student in Canada at this very moment who is uh, working from Canada and will graduate with his master's in September. So uh, if people are interested in finding more about this, please just go onto our website, which is ins.act.uk, or just Google Institute for Northern Studies, or uh, just Google myself, and you can come and join us and find out much more about all of these exciting things. And okay. that's my commercial done now. There we go. I love that. Thank you. Um, so when we, I mean, your your titles, there's a few of them, actually. Professor of Northern Heritage, there's Research Environment Culture, and Head of Cultural Heritage. So Donna, I mean, you said Heddle in the history of the last name of your last name. Um, is it how do you end up in this place? I mean, you have a long list of education, um, teaching, sharing the culture, everything else. How do you get there? It's a beautiful place. It seems to me to be a little known place. Um, does it, is it part of just your natural makeup? Um, maybe your humanitarian side that just says, you know, I love where I'm from and the world needs to learn about it. We need to protect it. What, what matters about this for you? Because the resume is so long. It seems to me to be indicative of, of a bit of a love affair. Well, yes. Well, it's uh, my love affair with Scotland, generally speaking. <clears throat> when I was a young girl at university, the inference was that if you had any gift at all, then you'd be going south, right? You'd, be, you'd go to England. Right. And I, I decided I didn't want to do that. I wanted to stay in Scotland. Scotland is the, is the place for me. And the north was the place for me um, as well. It's, uh, um, Orkney is a well-known, you know, Orkney has always been recognised from the very earliest maps 
of Pliny's very early maps. He may not have the Southern Hemisphere, but he does have 30 Orkney Islands on it. <clears throat> when Columbus came back from the New World, he commissioned a map, and on that map, he's left off the Netherlands because that was the competition, but he's got 60 <laughs> Orkney Islands on it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, for example, uh, um, the key scene in the novel Frankenstein takes place in Orkney. Oh, wow, I didn't know Victor that. Frankenstein, you know, Victor Frankenstein realises that mucking about with dead people is a bad idea. Um, and then the final denouement of the novel, of course, is in the Arctic, going the points north. And Orkney, of course, has a great connection with Canada there, with the Hudson Bay Company. Yeah. Which, uh, of course, was started in 1670 by Prince Rupert of the Rhine. But um, they started recruiting in Stromness in Orkney from 1702. And at one stage, nearly all of the employees of the Hudson Bay Company were Arcadians. Really? Because their, yeah, because of their um, indefatigability and their excellent sailing skills. I, when I was over in, in Manitoba about 10 years ago, I went into the museum in Winnipeg and was enchanted to discover an exhibition about a far-flung strange place called Strumnet, um, in which they had the canoes of the, the voyageurs. Um, the, the normal canoe for a six-month journey into the hinterland was full of supplies. The canoe for the Orkney men appeared to have a toothbrush and a, a spare face cloth <laughs> and a shirt in it. And, and that was it. They very much lived off the land. They were you know, tremendously indefatigable. And of course, that comes from their Norse heritage. That's amazing. Has the, um, well, I mean, the Bay stuff, do it, does that get recognized in Canada through the history of the Bay stories? I have not heard that until we were introduced to your, uh, to your story and the connection with the Bay. And that's what we call it in short order here is, is the mm. Bay. Um, it, the Bay has done a pretty good job in Canada of maintaining the commercial end, of course, but some of the commercial end storyline of some of the history and how it was, you know, really the first corporation. So does that get represented at all? Or is that one of those things that's, that's been getting a little bit lost? Well, in Orkney, we're well aware of these things. And we have a, a marvelous story about one Isabel Gunn who disguised herself as a man and went to work for the Hudson's Bay Company in Canada. And uh, they only discovered she was a woman when she gave birth, which I think probably oh, was that's, a fair old hint. That's yeah, a giveaway. That's a, a bit yeah. of a giveaway. Yeah. yeah. Um, so here it's very much part of our history. For example, we have a well um, uh, in Stromness where the ships all filled up with water, the Hudson's Bay ones, and also the ones going to the Atlantic, as a big part in the Arctic as well. So it's very much part of our story. Canada's very much part of our story because lots of Arcadians uh, emigrated to Canada. Manitoba was one of the, um, the areas that they went to in particular, and they quite often came back and brought with them their um, First Nation wives. And so and so we have quite a strong connection there. Um, and uh, I myself, when I was over giving a keynote speech, the University College of the North was being opened in the, in the North of Manitoba, and they invited me to give a keynote speech. And uh, I was uh, met at the um, airport by um, a very uh, tall uh, and First Nations um, figure who introduced himself to me as Albert Tate. Now, Albert Tate was the chief executive of the Orkney Islands Council at that time. So it was uh, That's <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> so and we've had uh, you know, uh, First Nation and Métis people have come over to Orkney uh, and a number of times uh, in an official capacity to see the homes of their ancestors. Oh, that's beautiful. And so, and so forth. Well, it, it is beautiful. With a smudging ceremony here um, in, in Kirkwall, and I myself have a beautiful medicine bag made for me by an old lady, which uh, is to protect me from harm and so forth, and that hangs in my office in Kirkwall. That's beautiful. I mean, I would never have thought. It makes total sense, too, right, um, that the bloodlines would be there, this, the family lines, the family names. I'd be curious to look up some of the... Um, Indigenous groups here in, in Canada and, and look for some of those names that, that maybe um, 
reach well, they're certainly from there, there right? Shane. They're certainly yeah. there. But, I mean, that, I was I was quite you know surprised to see how many that were there. I was in the park in the north of uh, uh, Manitoba there. Yep. It's, and hilariously, the plane that I took was exactly the same plane as we take to go to Edinburgh. Oh, that's fine. I was born. I, I don't know. It's on the other side of Manitoba, but I was born in Flinflon. It's not far from the Paw. So. Oh, uh, yes, we landed in Flinflon. Yeah, so that's where my family plane. is. So that's where that's where there's an awful mm-hmm. lot of Hewitts. So that that's interesting that um, that those connections sort of come back together. I realize I'm creating my own my own evidence there, but it is fascinating. Um, this whole conversation to me is remarkable, and I'm left with one very important one. So if you're in Scotland, um, technically, uh, Scotch or Irish whiskey, which where does it go up there? Because here in Canada, we've got our Canadian rye whiskey, and I'm thinking if the whiskey's still popular, maybe we can talk you into coming to be part of Canada instead of going to, you know, Norway. Well, you know, Shane, I was very, very nearly born in Canada. My mother um, came home to Scotland very pregnant. The only way she was allowed to fly is because she was herself a midwife. Wow. Um, so I could very, very easily have been a Canadian. Um, but uh, here in Orkney, of course, we make excellent whiskey. Uh, Highland Park and uh, Scapa are two examples. We also make rum, gin, beer, wine and aquavit. So we're well, we're well served with all of that. And uh, we actually work with a whiskey company. To, uh, to, to We have created their Viking identity for all of their, their particular whiskies and so on and so forth. So I'm sure there's some sort of deal to be done. Well, if you ever run into some of those politicians that are starting to uh, toot off about, you know, going and joining Norway and all of those things, you just do me a favor and you say, you got to talk to Shane Hewitt. He says that we should be part of Canada. We're way more fun over here. I'll let Hamza Yusuf know. Appreciate that. That's the first minister. There we go. I love this. It's been such a treat to meet you. Uh, What a delight this has been. Thank you for sharing time with us. I wish you good morning and have a fantastic weekend. I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you very much. This is the Shift Podcast. Strikes. Well, we've heard a lot about them. I don't really understand what is going on in particular with the strike in BC, the port strike. Because it's so many different things, and they haven't really shared much, right? The two sides, they say, well, one side changed their mind. We were negotiating, doing great, and the other guys changed their mind. The thing about Vancouver, the thing about ports, is it's a tight-knit community. Like port workers, man, we've had port workers call into the shift, and they're just, like, it's like what happens at the port stays in the port. Like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I admire the loyalty that comes with uh, workers. And I know there's a bunch that listen. And so is it a Vancouver problem? Is it a work problem? Is it a wage problem, which slash Vancouver problem? Uh, Is it a, a business function, business design problem? I mean, there are so many things going on here without a doubt. Now I have some questions about that, but more so I have some questions about the impact of all of these things. And joining me now is uh, Fraser Johnson. He's with uh, Western University Ivy um, Business School and Professor Operations Management and all those things. Fraser, thanks for being here. Appreciate you. Thank you for having me on. Um, Complicated issue, this, uh, and a very quiet one, this one going on in Vancouver. Well, it's probably a good thing that we're not hearing a lot. I agree there hasn't been a lot of information that has leaked out. Uh, Hopefully that means that there's some discussions going on behind the scenes. It's important 
uh, on a number of dimensions that this gets resolved. Uh, and I'm hoping that the two parties can get it resolved between themselves without the government getting involved. Well, wouldn't that be an interesting notion, Fraser, that um, two business organizations, one being the union, one being the company, were able to actually do business without politicking for public favor? What a neat idea. It'd be great, <laughs> wouldn't it? We don't see that anymore. We see everybody racing to the press release, trying to get public favor. Like this is, this has become more of a politicking has become more of a negotiating tactic than anything, which is probably a deeper conversation about vanity and philosophy than anything else. But it seems to work. And I agree with you. I think it's, it's, it's probably good news that we're not hearing a whole lot come out of it, but that could be part of that loyalty thing that this particular industry seems to carry. Well, negotiating through the media has been uh, an age-old strategy in these situations, so I'm not surprised to see it happen. Yeah. Okay, so what are we looking at here truly? Um, you do operations management, supply chain, all of those bits and pieces. Vancouver is the juggernaut of supply chain in Canada. Truly, it is. Um, most of the things come to Vancouver and then make their way across Canada, usually on a train. Can you help us understand what that looks like since we've got this frac potential fracture at the port in Vancouver? Yeah, the uh, port of Vancouver is the 800-pound gorilla of Canadian ports. It handles about, you took all the uh, ports in Canada on the East Coast and the West Coast and stacked up their volume. The port of Vancouver represents about 45% of the total Canadian volume. Wow. And it is what I refer to as Canada's gateway to the East. So product that comes in from China, uh, India, uh, South Korea, and even the U.S. Because there's a number of products that uh, come into Canada through the Port of Vancouver from California, for example. Uh, it's more economical to ship via marine than it is by a rail or truck. Hmm. Uh, and we're, this is only getting bigger. Is that the case? I mean, I know that Amazon's flying a lot of 767s and doing that whole thing now, but truly these can, this container world is, is here to stay? The uh, cheapest way to ship product is uh, via marine transport. Yeah. So if you're looking at controlling your costs so you can be competitive for the consumers and the best way to bring stuff in from long distances across the Pacific is uh, through marine transport. There's no question. One of the most that. amazing things about that port is the volume of containers and the spillover of those containers. Now, I don't mean tipping over. What I mean is, is that if you go from the port and you, you keep driving through industrial yeah. land, like 30 minutes through Richmond, yeah. way back to the other end of it, you're still seeing, seeing these massive yards of shunting trucks moving these containers around, jockeying for position and uh, getting them onto long haul trucks and getting them out. So it goes from the port, it goes all the way 30 minutes at least into Richmond, deep, deep, yep. deep. And uh, it is absolutely um, um, massive. What's the impact on Canadians if this thing goes down? Well, that, that's a great visual, Shane, because I, I think it's just uh, worth spending a couple of minutes to talk about sure. that. Because people yeah, yeah. Don't really don't understand that uh, you know, the port is, uh, you know, kind of the uh, opening of the faucet. Mm. And behind it uh, are trucks, rail networks, warehouses, bulk, bulk break facilities uh, that take the containers that are shipped into Vancouver 
Companies like Walmart and Canadian Tire have dedicated facilities, contracts with CN and CP Rail uh, to be able to get stuff from Vancouver, you know, through Alberta and into Ontario and ultimately maybe even Quebec or Eastern Canada. So these have been uh, net supply chain networks that have been built up over the years and have uh, huge economic impacts on the area. So let's, since you talked about the faucet, I like that. Let's talk about specific jobs. And I mean, we have lots of delivery people that listen, drivers and whatnot. So let's actually just sort of name off and brainstorm this together. Because I think I would like to try to acknowledge some of those jobs along the way. You have port workers, obviously, which affects um, all the marine workers, because if the ships can't go anywhere. I mean, you're talking millions of dollars a day for some of these ships. Well, there's that get about stuck with uh, 7,600 port workers that are involved in the strike. Yeah. Okay. Then that is the obvious support cleaning everyone else around it. We got that yep. part. Um, but then we have those shunt, local shunt drivers that are just moving containers in and around Richmond. That's and, a big deal. And quite often these work for third party service providers. Right. Uh, so um, so they would be affected. Right Right. And then that's going to affect things like fuel, uh, all the gas stations, everyone else that's working there. Um, then you've got long haul truckers. Yep. Who else do we have? We've got uh, we local uh, warehouse. You got warehouse workers. Oh, right. Inventory. Uh, managing the inventory, loading the trucks that, uh, from the warehouses that are probably yep. being emptied out right now that are shipping the product either via train uh or the equipment uh, operators out of the warehouses so those are probably being shut down so the the multiplier effect here is significant it's not just the 7600 workers that work in the port yeah because we have forklift operators then we have long-haul truckers uh, that starts to affect and then that just affects the efficiency at that point when truckers are deadheading or something right um then you've got everything in between, which is the guy who sells the Slurpee to the trucker, the coffee well, shop. I was just I mean, going to say it's the fuel, it's the uh, stuff that uh, the warehouse workers and the truckers and the people that work for the rail companies uh, purchase to be able to support their operations. I haven't been watching any of the uh, rail stocks. Rail stocks are such a good indicator. Um, I haven't been watching any of those um, those kinds of things. Have we started to see some of the business impact trickle down yet? Is anyone getting scared? CP and CN uh, stock prices have uh, been pretty stable over the last uh, six months or so. Yeah. Um, the U.S. stock you know, rail stocks have been down a bit, but uh, the Canadians uh, kind of have an oligopoly. Uh, yeah. So they, their <laughs> stock price has been pretty resilient, even with the economic downturn that we've seen lately. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so then we get to we get to empty shelves, I guess. Is that how this starts to look for Canadians? Well, there, there are a number of things. So, you know, we can talk about the inbound side, but I think it's also worthwhile talking about the outbound side. Oh, I, you know what, Fraser? I did not even think of that. But, uh, you know, the inbound side in terms of shortages, and it's probably worthwhile talking about what kind of products come in through the Port sure. of Vancouver. Uh, so you've got household and consumer goods, uh, electronics, appliances, fashion, you know, clothes, toys, construction materials, uh, automobiles from Japan and South Korea, uh, machinery and equipment, uh, you know, mainly for businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think you know we're a long ways away from Christmas, uh, so it's not going to affect uh, people that want to buy a big screen TV, but and we're not too far away from back to school season. Uh-huh. Uh, so the kind of stuff that parents would be buying for their kids are everywhere from, you know, laptops 
tablets, uh, clothes, uh, school, other school supplies would be affected. Uh, my oldest uh, grandson turned three today. Oh, and I looked at uh, some of the stuff that he got for his birthday. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of this stuff probably came in through the port of Vancouver at some point. What's your grandson's first name? William. William. Happy birthday, William. Will. Does he go by Will? He's not a Willie? He's a, no, he's a, not a Willie. He's a Will. Nice. I love that. A proud grandpa. Um, okay, so then that's inbound stuff. And as much as we are not close to Christmas, you know, those orders have been done six months ago to arrive in September. I mean, as soon as that, you know, th Canadian Thanksgiving happens, really, I mean, that's when all of that inventory needs to start to be available, at least trickling down into local warehouses, if not in store yet. So, I mean, it's not far off, really, if you think about it. Not to mention, it's probably been bought already and paid for. Yeah, you know, I um, I think there's a couple of ways to look at this. You know, the, the uh, Walmarts and Canadian Tires of the world have fairly sophisticated supply chain machines. They've known about the potential for a strike for a while. Uh, they probably have made contingency plans. You know, I tend to be more concerned about the small and medium-sized businesses mm -hmm. uh, that rely on local distributors that don't have those alternatives. Uh, so they're probably more likely to be hurt than the uh, than the big players. Um, <clears throat> and I'll just you know, take I a second. Most... I just want to acknowledge Canadian Tire before you move on, because if nobody has taken a look at what is Canadian Tire? I mean, if you ever want to get a real kick out of learning, go look at how Canadian Tire is essentially two businesses. They are an infrastructure business and they are a bank. And it's amazing what they have accomplished in this country in order to do supply chain management and money management. It's unbelievable. And uh, Walmart's kind of the same, I suppose, but less on the bank, more on the infrastructure. I just want to acknowledge that part because they're, you know, it's, it's amazing what they've done. Yeah, they're an incredible company and, you know, they've got their dealer model, uh, too, uh, which has been very successful for them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Going out of the country. Um, what do we have? Uh, you know, come the fall, we're going to have anything harvest. That's a thing. Um, <laughs> I don't yeah. know as much as we ship as much out of the country anymore. Like we used to, it's not like we're shipping cars well, out of Canada. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the kind of, that's true. Uh, we don't ship, uh, cars or car parts uh, out of the country, especially out of Vancouver. But, uh, you know, the big exports are coal, grains like wheat, uh, minerals, fertilizer, mm, mm -hmm. uh, oil, gasoline, and uh, some frozen meat. So pork, fish, beef. Uh, so, it, you know, it affects uh, everywhere from the farmers to the beef producers to the, uh, uh, the miners. Um, and all the people, if you go back to our earlier conversation, all the uh, the people that support uh, those industries as well. So, you know, I think we have to be concerned about what the potential impact is for uh, the Western economy, as well as what the impact might be for, you know, say Calgary and Toronto in terms of product shortages of things coming in from uh, China or Japan. What's our, what's our drop, but I call it drop dead time. What's our drop dead on this? Like at what point do we start to see a fracture? I would, maybe there's a bit of a, uh, an inventory spool, if you will, that um, we can pick from a bit of a safety net, right? Some staging yeah. distribution warehouses. I mean, the yeah. number one growing real estate 
as far as last I looked in Canada was actually warehousing. If you ever wanted to invest in anything, invest yep. in warehousing. Um, but how much, how much of a spool, if you will, a buffer of product do we have before we start to see trouble? Well, I, I've been quoted as saying we probably have uh, two weeks wow. uh, before the government's going to want to get involved. And I, I, I think, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is that, uh, you know, back to my earlier comment, the impact on the small and medium-sized businesses. Um, but uh, every organization carries some level of safety stock. Uh, so, you know, they never know when something's going to happen, whether whether related or otherwise, for example. Yeah, breakdowns um, even. But, typical but, breakdowns. You know, if, we're, if we're in an environment where the government and the Bank of Canada is worried about inflationary pressure, the last thing we need is a port strike to drive up prices, which may cause the Bank of Canada to further increase interest rates. Uh, Less tax always gets the government. If the government's not going to be collecting tax, they always tend to jump to action a lot quicker too, right? I guess that's a side advantage, right? If prices go up, they can get more HST. I suppose. Yeah, boy, they made enough of uh, the GST off of the, uh, through the pandemic, they did well there. Um, okay, so I was going to ask this question, Fraser, that I, I guess that maybe you've answered it, but I'll ask it anyway, at the risk of sounding too naive in this conversation. But do we need to be more guarded and protected economically, at least inside manufacturing, a little bit. Now, I realize the GDP of being able to domestic product grow is important. Self-sustainability seems to, over the last 20 years, become a real problem in Canada. And while it is good to sell it, that would even if we were selling it internationally, we wouldn't, we would still be in a pickle here. But in order to be able to survive and do the basics I mean, we do have food. That's probably one of the best things. We do have uh, energy. That's another great thing for us. But when it comes to general product manufacturing, have we sold too many apples to be able to make apple pie these days? Do we need to reevaluate? Well, I think what's happened, Shane, over the last 50 years is that organizations have been chasing the lowest cost provider. And, you know, this is uh, how we ended up uh, in China and relying on China for so much of our product. Uh, costs are starting to increase in China. So now companies are looking at places like Vietnam. My, my view is that, and I think you raise a very important point, uh, you know, how can we uh, get away from uh, our reliance on uh, suppliers of, of products and services that are located half a world away? Now, my, my view is that I, I think supply chains are going to become more regional. Uh -huh. And I don't think it's realistic necessarily to be able to put everything that Canadians need in terms of manufacturing capability inside of Canada. But certainly within North America, Mexico, the U.S., uh, and Canada, uh, to look for uh, sources of supply uh, so that we can support our needs more regionally than we can on a global basis because of international trade tensions, because of our reliance on international infrastructure uh, to be able to get product into Canada. There was a really great story and it was actually a carbon tax story. So forgive that part, but there was a story and it was Pierre Polyev who said it. So also forgive the political uh, nature of it because that's not what I intend about it. But he had a really good point. He said, it's cheaper to buy tomatoes from Mexico in the grocery store his local grocery store and he lives in Greeley which is not far from a town called Manatic. Now Manatic also grows tomatoes but they have to pay carbon tax because they deal in carbon dioxide yeah. right. 
So it's cheaper to buy tomatoes from Mexico than it is to buy tomatoes from Ontario. And that becomes really problematic in policy. Now, at least it's Mexico, so you could put it on a truck in theory and bring it up. Um, but at the same time, is that just nothing but a good example of how some of these overarching policies in general just aren't working for sustainability in Canada? Well, I think if you unpack your point there, it really is it's not <clears throat> necessarily more expensive to produce the tomatoes in Canada. It's just more expensive to buy them mm -hmm. uh, because of all the... Uh, uh, taxes and uh, other uh, costs that uh, producers uh, have to cover to be able to do business in Canada. And, you know, I think one of the things that uh, we need to look at at all levels of government, you know, but mainly provincial and federal, is how do we make it easier for businesses to set up and operate in Canada and to be cost effective? Mm. And sometimes policies at the area of issues like sustainability can get in the way of that. With your work around infrastructure, um, and all of that, is it a very scary future with cost of energy to drive diesel trains, diesel trucks, all these things around it? Is it is that is there a big elephant in the room here that we're all kind of avoiding when we talk about cost of products when we're looking at the skyrocketing um, well cost of buying the basics, diesel fuel, and all those things? Yeah, I, you know, rail transport is still very inexpensive uh i you know the uh virtually everything that's shipped and delivered to stores somehow some way is touched by a truck uh so that's really where you have to look at in terms of cost so they're the cost of diesel fuel for example for uh for trucks uh marine transport is relatively efficient so is rail uh but you know it's really the trucking industry that gets hurt by uh, fuel costs yeah what are you excited about where Canada's going with all things infrastructure then? Well, I, I think that the uh, the federal government uh, really has to take a look at our, our um, national infrastructure. It's not just the ports, but also our national highway system, our rail car system, to make sure that we've got enough capacity so that we can efficiently and effectively move product uh, from different parts of the regions. Uh, because I think we're seeing bottlenecks. Uh, the Port of Vancouver uh, volume goes up every year. We were interrupted a bit by the pandemic uh, in 2000 and 2001, uh, but we've got constraints, uh, you know, drive around Calgary, drive around Vancouver, drive around Toronto uh, on our road system, our bridges. Uh, we need to invest in our road infrastructure uh, so that we can remain competitive as a nation. Uh, because we don't want to develop a bad reputation internationally as a place where you can't do business. Or just drop it on 767s and say that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. Um, uh, this is absolutely fascinating, Fraser. I appreciate you taking some time to be with us. Um, it's a uh, I mean, it's quite amazing what we do. The thing about trains that always blows my mind is it's such an old notion. And I mean, even from general infrastructure, you know, the sort of cost per weight ratio is amazing. The diesel of elect over electric is amazing. If you just want to be a nerd about engines, like everything about it is so fascinating. And even the safety record for the amount of stuff they move versus when things go wrong. So there are pieces of this that we've had right for a very, very long time. And it almost seems disrespectful to all the things that we get right in this 
to not be diligent with the supporting things like you talk about the bottlenecks? Well, the uh, Canadian railroads are world-class operations. Uh, you know, if you take a look at their their operating metrics, uh, you know, they are as good as any other railroad around the world. Uh, so we are incredibly lucky uh, to have both CN and CP uh, in terms of supporting our logistics infrastructure. Uh, and it's a, um, but they're not meant for short haul deliveries. No. Uh, so uh, we tend to rely very heavily on uh, the trucking industry. Uh, Fraser Johnson, Professor of Operations Management, the Ivy Business School, Western. Um, thank you. This is awesome. It's great to meet you. My pleasure, Shane. I really enjoyed it. And happy birthday, Will. <laughs> Enjoy some cake. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? 877-399-9898. Share your thoughts on these stories that might make you ponder just a wee bit. Um, okay. Are you okay with? Apologizing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the, the big things you learn when you grow up is the difference between a good apology, a half, you know, half a baked apology and a bad apology and where you can use either three of those. That That is a fun part of getting older because I'll give you an example. If okay. I mess up and do something that maybe my partner Laura doesn't like, I'll give the genuine, I am so sorry. I screwed up. This is what I'll do. Ooh. Then you kind of get the half-baked one, but then the best it was when you're in retail. Oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry your son doesn't like this video game. What a tragedy. I will do everything in my power to get you your refund. Oops, I did everything. Can't get your refund. Have a good day. Again, so sorry. Wow. Con yeah. Contrived. Um, I know. So much fun. So can we talk about this? Because my, my <laughs> wordsness is coming out. Like I like I agree word. with you. Apologies are so incredibly important. You know how you make apologies? Um, the true ones, not the mm -hmm. customer service ones that Ryan's talking about. <laughs> you want to know a secret about this? Two yes. things. Okay. You know how to say you're sorry? I'm sorry. Stop saying you're sorry. Yeah. Number one. Yeah. Uh, don't apologize. We put ourselves in a moment of um weakness when we say sorry and we put ourselves in a moment of weakness when we say sorry all the time create understanding first the impact what is the impact of what you did on you okay let's say late for a meeting simple everyone's been there fair enough okay so i'm late for a meeting ryan's been sitting waiting right mm -hmm. uh hey ryan Thank you for waiting. Step one, say thank you. You're welcome. Acknowledge the effort. Step two, I understand you got lots going on in your personal life right now and you're busy and you like to get the stuff buttoned up and me being late delays that. Okay. Okay. Already, like this is a, a good apology already. I'd be satisfied right. even there. Yeah. Um, and then the very few times that you need to say you're sorry then say, Ryan, I'm sorry I did this to you. 
Mm. Also, please don't say so sorry because you can't be so sorry. <laughs> You're just sorry. Um, the more in like you exaggerate it, the worse it gets for the discrediting yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Cause you're not so sorry. Cause if you were so, so if I was so sorry, Ryan, I would have been on time. Right. Mm. So you thank them for their patience. When you walk into a meeting, if you're late for anything, interview, whatever, thank you very much for your patience with me. I understand you're busy or I understand that we set a time for seven o'clock and, and I was not prepared or I timed it poorly. And that is impacted on you. The one little bonus you can put in there on how to apologize is actually ask a question. Interesting. And say, can you help me understand how I've impacted you or how this has, you know, been difficult on you? And quite often people will take the kindness thing of like, I'm fine. I kept myself. Don't worry. I'm good for time. I kept myself busy. I made a couple of phone calls while you were late and I got a couple of other things done. So in fact, you being late, let me get a little bit ahead. And so now your apology has turned in an opportunity to share and connect and off you go into successful relationship land. Now, you know, there's a little episode of what it's like to uh, come talk to Shane Hewitt about uh, the word things. Jeez, yeah. that, that's fantastic. It's great advice. And my advice, if you want to go the more customer service route is just don't do any of what Shane just said. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. That's it. Uh, but try that though. Next time you're with your favorite person, right? Just like Ryan talked about with his partner, and you just want to say, and so, like you're late or, or you did something that, you know, it's kind of out of the agreement of the relationship or whatever, and just say, you know, I know that we talked about this, but I made my decision and um, I have reasons why I did it. You don't even have to make the excuses, right? And so just, in, and I understand that impacts you. Um, am I missing anything Do I, that I need to understand here? Yeah, it's amazing. You watch your relationship change. I know some people will be rolling their eyes right now going, oh, that's so corny. Just say you're sorry. No, don't say you're sorry. Because we say we're sorry all the time. We discredit it because we always say, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Especially as Canadians. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. eh? Like we do it all the time. So when you actually say thank you for helping me and being patient with me because I'm a screw up of a human and I can't time how to get to the car on time and get to this meeting because somehow Google even told me how much time I needed and I still got it wrong. We're all there. We've all been through it. So anyway, uh, back to are you okay with? <laughs> Turns out the most infamous tourist of 2023 in the entire world has said, sorry. Remember this guy, the tourist charged of defacing a wall at Rome's ancient Colosseum? Well, he says he's sorry. He better be. Look at this. You've seen this video by now. Police say a bystander filmed, who was American, the bystander, filmed this 27-year-old carving um, his and his girlfriend's names into the 2,000-year-old amphitheater back in June. The UK-based tourist faces a fine up to $16,000 and up to five years in prison. What's with this smile? <laughs> his lawyers say he hopes for a plea bargain to avoid jail time. Wait a second. Why do they have to just declare that the rat was American? <laughs> right? <laughs> the rat in this case who told the whole world that he was a bad guy was American. Fourth of July. It's just like, I know it's that was a few days ago now, but you got to keep the pride going. That would be my guess. Is that what it is? No. I don't that's think so. I, I think that's just a, I think that's actually a, it's almost like a stereotype shot, right? I don't yeah. know. It's crazy. Um, Anyway, um, or maybe it was actually the reverse where it's like 
it's almost like he was saying Americans have no couth at all, but this guy, this guy's pretty cool, right? Like, I don't know. We got one. Everybody, There's one. We got one. Uh, that's obviously not the case. Um, anyway, that was from CBS News. In a later dated Tuesday and shared with NBC News by his attorney, Dmitry, uh, Dimitrov, wrote, I admit with deepest embarrassment that it was only after what regrettably happened that I learned of the antiquity of the monument. Uh, social studies, buddy? The letter was addressed to the mayor of Rome, the city council, and city magistrates. Dimitrov said he is aware of the gravity of the act he committed and extended my heartfelt apologies to Italians and the whole world for the damage done to an asset that is, in fact, the heritage of all humanity. I am also aware that similar conduct in my country would have resulted in much more serious consequences, Dimitrov wrote. Um, For this reason, I accept all responsibility and will make sincere and concrete efforts to redeem myself and make up for the mistake I've made. Dimitrov, um, Dimitrov said there's no justification for the incivility, superficiality, and levity of his actions. He closed the letter saying he's hoping his apology will be accepted. He also said in his letter that he wasn't aware that the ancient monument's age or seriousness of the deed committed. All he needs now is a little bit of sad music. So let's uh, get the sad music. And to all those affected, I want to say we are deeply sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. I would say that if he is truly sorry and he includes in his letter this, I am also aware that similar conduct in my country would have resulted in much more serious consequences. He could have self-imposed consequences on himself that would have been related back to what he would go through in his country. (laughs) There's no word of that, is there? How do you not know? Like, you went to the Colosseum to see it, and I hate Mm -hmm. to break it to you, it looks old. It's, uh, he knew. Like, there's no way he didn't know. Everybody, like, you know what the Roman Colosseum is. It is one of the most famous buildings on the planet. I would say a second only to the pyramids. So, uh, yeah, there's there's no way. Leaning Tower Pizza? Yeah, Leaning Tower. Yeah. Um and the uh the giant dinosaur in Drumheller. That's the other one. Those oh, that's definitely the, yeah. one of the oldest yeah. of all time. Absolutely. Uh the nickel in Sudbury also. And the nickel in Sudbury. Okay. Um all right. Anyway, uh sorry. Are you okay with Bears again and again and again? I think again. we're on our third again now. Yeah, we're on like our third one. Uh, bears are bear, bears are bears are cool. Uh, I saw a video of a house trained bear today. Actually, Weird. this guy like goes up to the window to look outside, and this bear is in the house and walks up, and the bear actually stands and put its arm around the guy like they're friends, mm. and uh, that's all cool until the bear decides to eat him, which is right. you know a thing that bears would do. So I I would uh, even if it's friendly would f- just stay away. Yeah. Ah, it's a bear. Another day, another bear attack. Last night here on The Shift, we learned about a woman who punched a bear in the face to save her dog. But how about this one? A woman who closed the door on her boyfriend to keep her bear out of the house. This story stars a young black bear similar to this one. These terrified dogs 
and this man dressed for bed on the back porch of his Annandale, New Jersey home. Watch as they wind up within inches of each other. Again in slow motion, as Joseph Damiani gives us the play-by-play of his nighttime bear encounter, May 15th. I hear a bunch of woof, 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 woof. The dogs shoot right past me, into, the, and then I see the bear. And then the, the dogs went in. The bear tried to charge into the house. Girlfriend Shirley Perlinski was right at the door. When they came inside the house, I just tried to lock the door, but I couldn't because the door got caught in the leash, so I was fighting. I was fighting the bear, you know, to the bear was pushing the door this way. I was pushing the door that way. That's my boyfriend. And, uh, you know, I love him very much, but I couldn't let the bear inside my house. I love him very much, but not that much. CBS 2 for that one. Damiani was able to run around to the other side of the house and come in the front door. Basically, in case you've missed what happened here, woman and man are outside. Bear shows up. Woman runs in the front door. Closes the door, leaves Bear and boyfriend outside. That's basically what's happened. Oh, and the um, the two dogs also get in before the boyfriend. Save so the, the dogs first. The dogs are fine. Yeah. Yes. The couple said wildlife officials told them the bear was likely lured to their yard by bird feeders. They said the feeders have now been emptied. Um, you know, this is we've received many a text messages. Probably acknowledged Trucker Dan too. Remember, you don't have to out you know outrun a bear. You just have to outrun your friend. That whole thing, right? How do you outrun a bear, put bacon in your friend's pocket, stuff like that? You know, those are all fun jokes. But this lady actually did it. How do you have that conversation? Right? Now, Ryan, you talked about apologies. How to have an apology there. How do you apologize to your partner for locking them outside so you could close the bear and save yourself? And saying, good luck, champ. Uh, I would go, sorry. I'm so sorry. Not sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so how do you approach that from the perspective of the boyfriend? Um, so you get into bed, you brush your teeth, you got your jammies on, you kind of snuggle in for the night, and you're like, mm-hmm. um, baby, before we go to sleep, <laughs> do you want me dead? <laughs> like, what, yeah. how do you, like, how do you go about that? I can't bear the thought of you doing this oh, to me. Oh, boy. It's oh. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. This could have I been a grisly scene. Oh, there it oh. is. <laughs> Pardon me. Well, that made me cough. It was so good. Yeah. Are you okay with Taylor Swift? Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay with Taylor Swift. Not all the time. Sometimes, you know, the, the, the vibe is right. I enjoy a good Taylor Swift song. It takes me back to being a kid. Uh, and uh, some I don't, I don't listen to a lot of her new music. But, uh, you know, I never, like, turn off the radio if a Taylor Swift song comes on. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't like her music. I 100% appreciate what she's accomplished because she's just, like, a killer. It's amazing. Um, and what she represents to a whole generation, also cool, just not my music. Uh, Taylor is currently on the Eras Tour, a massive worldwide tour that brought millions of fans to massive stadiums and definitely not in Canada. On Wednesday, the U.S. superstar added 14 shows in the U.K. and Europe next summer, announcing the new dates on her Twitter account. Really can't contain my excitement because we're adding 14 new shows to the Era Tour, she said. Now, our Prime Minister replied to her announcement with a message referencing a few of Twist's so- Swift's songs, 
including Cruel Summer. Hi, it's me. I know the places in Canada would love to have you. So please don't make it another Cruel Summer. Hope to see you soon. She has not even responded, which is too bad because some crazy things happen at Taylor Swift shows like this. And an Ohio baby came into the world in style when mom went into labor at the Taylor Swift concert in Cincinnati. Tori Hedges had a few weeks before her due date, but says she went into labor 20 minutes after Taylor wrapped up her show Friday night. Her friends and a few strangers helped her find a safe place to call 911 and the father-to-be. And just a few hours later, baby Lyle was born. People say that I started my new era as being a mother, so... Leave the heiress tour and go into my new moon. What a way to come into the world. Tori says she's been sharing baby pictures with the Swifties who stepped up to help her at the concert. I'm not one for, that's CBS 10, I'm not one for cheesy baby names. But I think in this case, you got to go with Taylor. I just think you do. Or you go yeah. with like Bridgestone Arena as the mm-hmm. baby name. Or any of the exes, Matt, Jake Gyllenhaal. No, um, no, you don't go that way with it. Um, Harry. Uh, Malcolm sent a text to Ryan. It says, Ryan, that was an unbearable dad joke. Uh, Are you okay with cocaine? Are you okay with cocaine? I've never done it. Uh, I know one person who has tried it, and uh, the way he described it to me, I was like, yep, yeah, nope, I'm good. That that is mm. a scary. That is a scary pipeline. And uh, I will say, though, that the whole like industry and like the drug trafficking in the 80s of the cocaine is fascinating. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, oh, I like the narco shows. Oh, the narco shows um, are awesome. In fact, that's where we're going to start this whole thing. Cocaine, drugs, never been my thing. Never been my bag. Never been my baggie. Never been my dime bag either. Uh, back in the 80s, though, this was the White House's policy on drugs. So to my young friends out there, life can be great but not when you can't see it. So open your eyes to life, to see it in the vivid colors that God gave us as a precious gift to his children, to enjoy life to the fullest and to make it count. Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. Thanks, Nancy. I remember this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. And everyone was like, I like eggs. Just a reminder, cocaine can really get you going, as showcased in the Corky Romano bit, where he, an FBI agent, wrestles a dog for some cocaine, and it ends blowing up in his face, and then he has to talk to kids. As a special treat, kids, we have a real live FBI man here to talk to us about what it's like to be a federal agent. Such a great, terrible movie. Now, with that in mind, this story also broke this week. 
The substance, which is believed to be cocaine, was found Sunday evening during a routine check by Secret Service, sparking a precautionary closure of the White House complex. D.C. Fire was called to investigate and quickly determined the item to be non-hazardous and performed preliminary field tests, which tested positive for cocaine. Now, the president and his family were not home at the time, having left for Camp David on Friday, returning back here to the White House on Tuesday. According to two law enforcement officials briefed, the bag of powder was found in a work area of the West Wing that could have been accessible to many people, including staff, visitors, and even tourists. That's CBS News, by the way. They discovered cocaine had been sent to a lab for more evaluation. Um, neither Biden or Trump were in the White House at the time, so you cannot make that joke, just to be clear. But we started this with apologies, and I'm not quite sure how you go to the president of the United States and go, um, yeah, sorry, I left my Coke here lying around. And Trump had a Coke button, but that was for Coca-Cola, just to be clear as well. So you can't blame <laughs> it on him either. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.